You're listening to Let's Talk Creation with Todd Wood and Paul Garner, the creation show where we learn, grow, and worship. All right, well, welcome back to another episode of Let's Talk Creation with Todd and Paul. I am Todd Wood. And I'm Paul Garner. And we're back now. We're done, Paul, with the flood. No more flood. (laughs) Not for a while, anyway. Um, Yeah, so people have a break from the geology for a while. Yeah. (laughs) We're coming back now to a, a an intermittent a new intermittent series that we started. I've I've lost track of all the different intermittent series that we have going, but this one is on biblical chronology. Um, so we introduced people last the last episode in the series, which was a couple of months back, uh, to the idea that there are huh, <laughs> multiple chronologies in the Bible, sort of, depending on exactly what ancient Bible you're reading, that you can come up with slightly different numbers. And we're referring especially here to a collection of Greek uh, manuscripts that are an ancient translation of the Old Testament. They are called the Septuagint. And we're going to talk about the Septuagint today. That's our subject. So if you like Bible stuff, this should be right up your alley. We're going to talk about Bible stuff again. So this is good. Uh, And we have a special guest with us. Before I introduce the special guest, though, it's important to remind you to like this video if you're watching on YouTube, uh, subscribe, um, do leave a review. That always helps us to beat the algorithm, which is always trying to keep us down. Um, Help us out by sharing uh, and interacting with us on social media as well. All of that stuff is a great benefit. Thank you for that. Now, back to our guest. Our guest this week is Henry Smith. Welcome, Henry. Hey, guys. Great to, ha- great to be on the show. I'm, I'm excited. Yeah. I'm yeah excited. Great to have you, Henry. Yeah. Thank you. Now, Henry is, Henry is another, uh, yeah. We haven't had him before, so he's a brand new guest, so this is kind of fun. Um, and I've lost my notes, which makes perfect sense. Um, so I've got all his, uh, I've got all his specifics here. He is a, he's from the Associates for Biblical Research. If you've ever seen Digging for Truth on television, he's the man, uh, that hosts, uh, those episodes. Um, he is a, uh, as part of his work at ABR, he is the dig director, the administrative director of the Shiloh excavations. Shiloh. As I understand it, Henry, that is where the Israelites set up the tabernacle. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, it's where they worshipped the Lord for about three centuries before the temple was built in Jerusalem. So very significant site uh, in biblical history, and uh, we're excited to be excavating there. It's, it's, an, it's been an awesome opportunity for us. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds amazing. So this is the period. This is basically Judges. And say the first couple of chapters of First Samuel, maybe Ruth. Uh, this is all before the temple happens, before David becomes king and Solomon builds the temple. So that's where they set up the tabernacle after they conquered the promised land. Yep, basically. yep. You're right. You're right on the money. The terminal terminal phase of Joshua, as well. You know, as they Got as it. they oh, take yeah. the land. Yep. So that's that's it. But law. That's a long period of time. Very very important biblical site. I mean, here's where people trekked. To be reconciled with God, yeah. Uh, in in the Old Testament uh, uh, theology, you know, so it's uh, of great importance. So, 
we're digging up a lot of great stuff there. Uh, people can check out our, our website and find out all about it. Volunteers come to Israel every year. This year coming up, we have 240 people joining us. It's a, wow. we, we've wow. blown, blown it away. The record before was about 150. So it's been, it's unbelievable how, how many people are, are coming volunteers from all over the world. So we're excited and, and it's going to be and a as fun administ- year. Administra- administrative director, I assume you're in charge of housing and feeding and transporting all 240 people. Is that right? Is that part of your job? Yeah. Yeah. yeah except for the, the transporting part, they have to make their own flight arrangements. We okay. take care of them as, as soon as they get to the hotel, then we're, then they're off to the right and then we'll take care of them. But uh, yeah, uh, a lot of work, but I mean, it's going to be an extraordinary year and we're going to be able to get so much done with this many people. And oh, yeah. it's just, we're so, bl- we're so blessed. So yeah. that sounds amazing. Yeah. That, Good times. I I I keep talking about going, but I haven't yet. But I want to. <laughs> no, no experience required. We train you. Well, perfect. Because I have no experience. That that's I'm totally qualified for this job. And, yeah. and we've had we've had people anywhere between the age of ten and ninety. Wow! Oh my goodness. So, you know, now uh, on that upper scale, you know, you got to be in pretty good shape and that kind of stuff. But man, I tell you, it's impressive, impressive. Uh, uh, and young, young kids, uh, parents think they're mature enough to come on and boy, they do a great job for us. And it's a life changing experience for young people, especially. So uh, we, we just, uh, we love it. And, um, and we just have wonderful people from all over the world that uh, come and serve Serve the Lord, and you and you got to pay to come. So you got you get to pay to be a slave, is essentially what it is. So and and uh, uh, I say that, of course, tongue in cheek. And then uh, and then people say, I want to do it again. We we call it the bug, and uh, we have a lot of people that a lot of people that come back. So it's wow. it's it's very a very faithful core group. And then each year we get new people, of course. So it's wonderful. So yeah, dig shy Thank you. I was just going to ask you that. Digshiloh.org. And Shiloh is spelled S-H-I-L-O-H. Is that right? That is correct. Yeah. Digshiloh.org. All right. Yeah. Same as like the Civil War battle. It's spelled exactly the same. Ah, excellent. I imagine there was a naming after going on there. Yes. Um, Okay. So, uh, yeah. Digshiloh.org. Check that out. It's pretty late. When this episode appears, it's probably going to be early summer, so it's probably too late for this year's dig, but people are going to want to be uh, have that on their radar for next year, because that sounds like an amazing time. And to be able to be there where the prophet Samuel was uh, confronted by the Lord. I mean, I assume this is where Eli, the priest, and Samuel, the, the child, were living in Shiloh, right? When this is happening, I imagine. Uh, that's were, right. And yeah, that's exactly right. And where Eli died in the gate. Ah, yeah, that's right. You know, when he falls backwards, because he hears the report that the Philistines have captured the ark and his two sons have been killed. And he's 98 years old. He, he falls backwards in his chair and breaks his neck and dies. It's very tragic. Uh, but this is where this takes place. And, um, you know, so when you, you read in a biblical text, the city gate, you know, in archaeology, you, that's something yeah, you're you looking for. It. Yeah. Know, can it mm-hmm. is it preserved and uh, does the the dating correlate with the the text? So you know it's that it's that kind of thing. It's it, it's really animating. It gets you excited when you get in the field and you start you know correlating the two. That's great. All right. Well, 
This episode is rapidly spiraling into let's talk about the judges period. <laughs> so maybe we need to rein it back, rein it back into let's talk about creation here. Or let's talk creation. Um, although I have to say our chosen topic this week is is perhaps um, less about creation itself. We're kind of setting the stage here, and we're trying to understand um, this this ancient Greek translation. So could Henry, could you give us like a two minute digest when we say the Septuagint? What is that exactly? Yes. That, that's a great question. Uh, another role of my, at the ministry is a research project I'm working on uh, on Genesis 5 and 11. And this has forced me to really dive deep into what, you know, what is the Septuagint. We probably could start by saying, we often speak of it as an it, and that's for practical purposes. Uh, but in reality, the, the Septuagint is not an it. It's actually a highly complex organism. Uh, we could probably talk about it in sort of three big chunks, I would say, maybe four. The first is uh, we have the, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, translated into Greek in the early 3rd century BC in Alexandria, Egypt. Uh, then in the intervening time period, probably about over the next 150 years, we have the rest of the canon, the Old Testament canon, being translated into Greek. Those are often called uh, Old Greek texts. Sometimes you'll see a distinction, the LXX mm -hmm. for the first five books, mm -hmm. and then the Old Greek for the rest. But the terminology is often intermixed. So, you know, somebody will say the Septuagint, and they're talking about the Septuagint of Isaiah. So the, the term the, the scholars try to delineate, but in the way that it works itself out, it doesn't stay delineated. Um, so probably around 130 BC is what most scholars estimate that the entire canon had been finally translated. Now, to add a layer of complexity to that, uh, the other books were mostly being circulated in individual scrolls, not as one unit like we have with the Torah. So, you know, you've got, and there's a question about, was it translated in Israel, in Egypt? Some of that is unclear. The later books, the, the Pentateuch was definitely translated in, in Alexandria, Egypt, but the rest of them, uh, there's, it's an open question. Uh, but then, just like you would with an English translation, as time is going on, people are reading the Septuagint and saying, we can come up with a better translation. We don't like the way this Greek is translated here. This, this syntax is outdated there. Sort of like what you would think about from the Geneva Bible all the way to the English Standard Version, right? You know, people are constantly trying to update the translation to make it more understandable to the contemporary audience. Uh, but then they've got different Hebrew scrolls that they're working with. They don't have the same ones that the original translators had, right? So you have that. So you have a, a couple layers of complexity. And then the last layer of complexity uh, is in the post-temple period, the post after the temple was destroyed, you have what are called the Jewish recensions. And these are uh, Greek translations that conform much more closely to what we call the Masoretic text. Uh, which is underlies our modern English translations of the Old Testament. And so you have this variety of, you have this progressive translation, you have updates taking place, and then you have 
what are called the Jewish recensions. There's some anonymous ones too. We don't know who they're attributed to that have been found. So just that, that sketch that I've just given, I think the audience gets the idea here. That's a pretty complex yeah. uh, progression over the course of about four to five centuries. And so, but it gives you an overview of, of what's happening there. So when we speak of the Septuagint, it's okay to use that terminology. But when we start getting into the details, it's clear that it's not an it. Right. Even though we, we have speak to, of it that way. Right. We have to specify exactly what we mean about this book or that book or whatever. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. So once you start getting the details, then, you gotta, then you've got to be more precise. Okay. That sounds good. But there... But there is a there is an interesting legend I understand about the origin of the Septuagint translation. Yeah. Um, I mean, you've you've given us a you've you've given us an interesting yeah. historical background there. But just tell us about that legend, uh, Henry, which I'm sure many people will have heard about, and I think we may have mentioned it before as well in our podcast. Yeah, it's this fascinating work uh, called the Letter of uh, of Aristeus or Aristius, depending on how you say it. You know. Everything has alternate pronunciations. Of course. Uh, th this, this has in it the, uh, the story that uh, 72 translators translating the Torah all went into separate rooms, translated the entire Torah, all came out with the exact same translation. Now, that's the, that's, there's a lot more in the letter of Aristeus. But as it relates to the origin of Septuagint, that is the Septuagint legend. Now, it was 72 translators, and then the name of the Septuagint be, got changed in the course of history to the 70, and so that's what we call it, the LXX, Roman numerals, the 70. Okay. Now, uh, scholars have examined this work, and I think it's uh, pretty obvious that that's not what happened, uh, that... Uh, Anybody who's dealt with translation work, uh, translating any language, uh, knows that there's no way that 72 individuals could possibly do that. The only way you could argue that is if you were to argue that they were all inspired by the Holy Spirit to write the same thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and that would be the only way that that would be, be remotely possible. So um, that's not the case. Um, but the legend... Uh, is helpful. And then Letter of Aristeus has a lot of historical errors and it has other stuff, you know, that it says that there's a stream flowing out from the Temple Mount. There's no stream. Uh, it says that the Jordan River runs into the Mediterranean Sea. It runs into the Dead Sea. You know, those, those kind of uh, things. However, there are uh, kernels of information that scholars have gleaned out of it uh, that, are, that are historical nuggets that are helpful to sort of help us understand the background. I think the biggest use of it for our purposes is, and a scholar from Lehigh University, ben, Benjamin Wright, has done all the work on this, is that uh, there were enough people in Judaism that in, had embraced the Septuagint. And so his, his uh, argument is that the letter of Aristeus is in part an apologetic to justify the use of the Greek text in the diaspora. That's kind of his take on it. And I think, I, you know, I've tried to read his stuff, and I think, I think that's probably right. Uh, so it does point to uh, that uh, diaspora Judaism was okay with the translation. In principle, like, there was nothing wrong with the idea of having a, a text translated into 
the common tongue of the day, which was, of course, uh, the Greek language. Now, Hebrew is preferable because it's the original, right? Um, but I think the, uh, the letter of Aristeas helps us understand that. Uh, now, this legend, I should add to this, did find its way into the early church. And uh, some of the church fathers embraced the story, and then the story got expanded to all the books of the Septuagint. So, so it kind of like, you know, it kind of like morphed into, uh, you know, it's a Septuagint, it's inspired. And um, now there were there were some church fathers who did not believe that. Origen, uh, Eusebius, Jerome are are three primary examples of the, that was not the case. They did not embrace that. Um, but it uh, it it kind of became an apologetic to try to defend the Septuagint because that's what the ch early church's Old Testament was. Uh, there was very few early Christians that knew Hebrew, and even if they did know it, they didn't have access to it because the uh, Pharisees originally, and then the rabbis who uh, survived the destruction of the temple, they were the ones that had the scrolls, and. Um, that had survived the destruction. And so the church had the Septuagint. So it's obviously important in the history of the church um, for us to look back and acknowledge that, hey, you know, our early brothers and sisters you primarily use this text, and therefore it has a really important place in the history of the church, and then helping us also get at what the original text read. So I hope that's a, a nice overview for you guys. Yeah. Can we talk a, a bit about the the culture and origin, the cultural setting and origin? So you you say that the the original core of the Septuagint was the translation of the Torah, which took place in Alexandria, Egypt. Now, I want to know. Are there were there these Jews doing this? Jews are translating this, and why are they in Egypt? And why are they translating it into Greek? What is the, what is yeah. the motivation for this? Yeah, I think I think there's several things there. I think one is um, well, they're in Egypt because they're the descendants of the exiles. You know, the, from the Babylonian exile. Okay. Um, we know from Jeremiah uh, that uh, that he but Jeremiah was in Egypt, and we know that exiles. Part of the the dispersion that happened, of course, many of them went to Babylon, but uh, there were Jews that went to uh, Egypt. Uh, there's archaeological evidence from all the way in the south at a place called Elephantine of a, of a Jewish uh, group living there. They built a temple there. Uh, uh, texts have been found of papyri and so on all the way there. So if we fast forward a little bit to the third century, we've already got a substantial Jewish population living uh, in Alexandria, and then uh, the Greek language is the lingua franca of the day. You know, it's it's the it's the language that everyone is using uh, uh, as a result, of course, the conquest of Alexander the Great. And so, uh, there's a real liturgical and practical need uh, in the Jewish community to have a translation in the vernacular and. Um, so it just makes a lot of sense in, in that context that that was part of part of their motivation. Um, now, some scholars will argue that, you know, there was even people losing the knowledge of Hebrew in the in the community at large. That may 
very well be the case. Uh, you know, you absorb culturally the language that you're immersed in. Sure. And uh, so, you know, if the people can't understand uh, the Hebrew, uh, you, you've got to do something. You want to keep propagating the word of God uh, to, to people. And so it makes a lot of sense uh, that there was a great need and, and they uh, were meeting that need uh, for the people there. And, you know, there was a, obviously the Alexandrian library. So there was a great academic uh, tradition that had been already established there. And, and, the, and the Jewish people were certainly part of, part of those communities. Well, that makes sense. So, so we've got Jews that have basically, I mean, as I, as I recall it, reading through, thinking through that, the, the remnant left in the land after Jerusalem's destroyed by Babylon, the last we hear of them, they want to go to Egypt. And they come to Jeremiah and say, we'll do whatever you tell us that the Lord wants us to do, but we want to go to Egypt. And he comes back and says, no, you need to stay here and serve Babylon. And they say, now nah, we're going to Egypt. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's the last I hear of them, right? I, I can't remember yeah. anything that happens specifically after that. But then we have these Jews living in Egypt who are then going to translate this into the Greek language, which I think is quite interesting that Greek, and this is from Alexander the Great, right? So Alexander the Great goes around well prior to this conquering conquering territory and so in Egypt you have a sort of a Greek ruler there a Greek speaking culture that's sort of the ruling class um and so Greek now is this I don't know language is is the Greek of the Septuagint comparable I know the New Testament's written in Greek is it comparable to that Greek is are we talking about roughly the same kind of language or is it more like English and English from 500 years ago, like the King James yeah. version. Yeah, that's a that's a very that's a very good question. Um, you know, that's interesting because you're 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 kind of like alluding to also the New Testament authors' use of the Septuagint, right? Oh, yeah, I was going to get there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, so like I don't mean to jump ahead, but you know, there's a there's a kind of a bridge there. So you know, and I think what what you see in the phenomenon of of in some ways there's a persistent use of language over time. But then in these, these new translations, these updates of the Septuagint, you also uh, see uh, linguistic changes that take place. Uh, of course, they also have a different Hebrew text they're working from. So in their mind, you know, hey, I think this deviates from the text too much. We're going we're gonna to adjust the, 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 the interpretation here, the translation to the, the biblical text that's in our possession. We don't have exactly the same one that the previous translators had. So there's a lot going on there, uh, and scholars can study these things. I think that's the, the, one of the major points, too, is, you know, you can study the use of, of, the, um, of, the, of the language and then look at, at evidence outside the Bible and compare the linguistics to try to see where the changes take place, because we've got lots of, lots of stuff outside the Bible from, from this time period in Greek, right, you know? Uh, people like Herodotus, for example, and, mm -hmm. and, and other historians. So the, there's such a wealth of information where you can, you can draw those comparisons, and those comparisons have been done. I should just mention real quick, um, now the letter of Aristeus is, is largely legendary, so one might say, well, then how do you know it was done in Egypt, uh, right? You know, if it's legendary, maybe yeah. the whole thing is made up, right? Yeah. So 
So you have that. So again, that's an area where there's been extensive work done on looking at uh, some of the Egyptian loan words that are used, especially you know in the Pentateuch. Oh yeah. You know, sure. you would you would look at the cities, for example, would be a, a one thing that you would look at. Um, name places, right? So somebody writing a, the the Septuagint translation who lives in Israel, for example, would they be as familiar with the geography of Egypt, the linguistics of the third century BC versus sometime later, right? Sure. Uh, cities, syntax, um, those kind of things are the kind of things that help scholars to identify the time period. And the wonderful thing about the age we're living in is there's been an explosion in Septuagint scholarship. It's completely overwhelming at times, actually, to even try to keep up with it. Um, but the benefit of that is you have all the you have a lot more people working on these different narrow issues, such as can you show that the translation came out of a third century BC context yeah. by the way that it's been done. And the use of the syntax in the language. And that seems pretty clear in the literature that that's a good solid case. You don't have to depend on Aristius to make that argument. Um, so, and you don't really want to because of the nature of what Aristius is. Um, so I find that really fascinating, uh, just from the standpoint of how, you know, it would be the same today if I was trying to translate in today's vernacular. From some other language into English versus if you looked at it 300 years from now, there would be differences. Yeah. Because yeah. La language, language changes. Language we changes. see words just in our lifetimes. Unfortunately, we're old enough to have observed how language morphs in its contemporary usage. And so it's the same thing. It's the same thing there. Yeah. So uh, one more question about <laughs> I'm. I, I feel like I'm going to get lost in this because this is utterly fascinating to me. We got to yeah, bring it back but... to creation eventually. But I want to mention here. I have my Septuagint right here. This is the classic Brenton um, Septuagint uh, translation in Greek and English. In Greek and English. Um, so uh, I, you know, this is in the the Core Academy uh, library, so I can go. I know exactly where it is on the shelf, so I can go and grab it. Whenever I want to consult the Septuagint. Now I know back then, back in the day, when the translators were sitting down to translate, they were writing it all, right? With with by hand. There was no computer. They couldn't edit things easily like that that we do. So what do we have left of that? Do we is there a first edition Septuagint from the Library of Alexandria? that we can go to and say, here it is, this is the original, or how close are we getting? Is there a lot? Is there a little? You talk about language change, so I'm guessing there must be quite a bit of material here. So what's, what's yeah. the physical attestation? How much, how much actual written stuff do we have of this, this early Septuagint stuff? Yeah, that, that's, a great, that's a great question. Um, from, from the earlier period before like the fourth century AD, we have fragmentary evidence. So papyri, you know, uh, writing material made from the papyrus plant, which originated in Egypt, um, just like New Testament papyri, same kind of thing. 
Um, but it is fragmentary. Some of it's before the before the before the turn of the millennium, before the time mm -hmm. of, of Christ. Mm -hmm. uh, there's been Septuagint texts found in Dead Sea Scrolls, caves, uh, and other caves in the Judean desert. Um, some fragments as old as the second century BC, uh, but not complete text. So, you know, kind of similar to the New Testament, the very early stuff, we've got fragmentary evidence. You also have, you do have external witnesses who are engaging with the text, like you have the chronologist Demetrius of Alexandria, who lived in the late third century BC. He actually does chronological work and commentary, and he's using the Septuagint in uh in, in alexandria so you can get sort of snapshots out of an external witness he's using a septuagint text how is he using his syntax and language um you got to be careful with that because you don't know how much he's writing from memory or how much he's copying from the biblical text but nonetheless that's an important th those external witnesses are important and then when you get into the into the uh the the fourth century then you have what were called the great codices books yeah right mm -hmm. the three famous ones are uh codex sinaiticus vaticanus and alexandrinus and uh those have large portions of um of of the tra the greek translation uh in them with some exceptions there's material missing from sinaiticus and vaticanus the original Vaticanus from Genesis 1 to Genesis 46 got lost, and then it was replaced with some text from a later period. Alexandrinus has a significant has all of Genesis 5 and 11, which is where my interest lies. Um, but uh, these are very important, not only because they uh, preserve the, the, the textual tradition of the Greek all the way back to the fourth century, but they also can be used to try to understand what underlying Hebrew text was being used in the translation, right? So you're getting back, you're getting back reasonably early. Now it's not, you know, the original from the Alexandrian library. We don't, we don't have that, but right. you know, we don't have that we, with any text. For the Bible. Right. Yeah. For the Bible. Yeah. So, yeah. so, um, but you, you can see, uh, I'll, I'll just allude to this. There's, there's a, there's a, a Hebrew scroll that was found at Masada, the famous site of Masada, where the mm -hmm. where the Jews were uh, surrounded by the Romans and sieged it for three years. Well, they they found biblical text at Masada, and one of one of the fragments that they found was a was a of in Hebrew uh, of Psalm eighty two and eighty three, and this matches exactly the the text we have now of what's called the Masoretic text from a thousand years later. It's it's a very conservative text. Even the indentations of it, wow, match match. I mean, it's 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 one of those texts that was written almost like a copy machine, which which always wasn't the case in antiquity. There was a lot of different styles of the way that people um, preserve a text. But I'm alluding to this because in two of the codices, uh, Peter Gentry and John Mead, these guys are two Septuagint experts. Have done an extensive study of comparing the codices to the Masada scroll, and there's almost a perfect alignment in terms of the indentations in the in in the Psalm, in uh, I think it's Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, where 
you see almost an exact correlation between the Greek translation and the Masada scroll. It's so fascinating. Um, so one's from Masada in Hebrew, the other's in these two codices, and you can see the preservation of the text from, from texts that are far apart geographically as well, right? Uh, it's it's such an interesting thing. Now we don't always have that, but yeah, but it does it does point us to uh, people who sometimes have concerns about the validity of the Septuagint. We always have to qualify and be careful and and be rigorous in our study. But there are instances such as the one I just described, yeah, which really show a faithfulness not not only in the tra- the, the translation but in the in the transmission. Of the Greek text, yeah, people people revering the text by keeping these patterns in it that are found in the Hebrew. So really, really fascinating. Um, I, I was just blown away by that. I, I had before I got into the study seven eight years ago. I I just wasn't aware of that, and um, it, it, it's it's pretty neat. So there's an example of the use of the Septuagint uh, in relationship to the Hebrew. Yeah, that is. That is striking. And now now English Bibles, we all have our own little. When I was growing up, we had King James and there was no indentation anywhere <laughs> except yeah. chapter and verse divisions. Yes. Um, so that's that's fascinating. Even the even the negative space of the text was considered important enough to preserve even in a translation. That's fascinating. Makes yeah, me and wonder you what we're missing. <laughs> Yeah, and you wouldn't necessarily have to do that in the Greek translation. No. I mean, you're, you're trying to communicate the translation, the language itself. Mm-hmm. But the structure is possibly secondary. It's not, I don't think it's secondary. But like in terms of if you're translating, you're not really, maybe you're not thinking about that. But these guys were thinking about it. Yeah. The other thing, as the, the great codices are copied from earlier texts. So this pattern sure. of, of, is, is, is has been preserved to an, an earlier uh, version of the Greek, yeah. so it's not it's not original in the in the sense of you know it's the first time it's being done. It, it it's it's from an older text, no question about that. So, yeah, yeah, really, really fascinating. So you can see the value of the Septuagint. Uh, while it's complicated, it's not something as a church that we should be afraid of at all. No, uh, no. the more we stuff. have them. The more we have of this, and if, if, and if you don't mind, I, I want to give a little, just a couple of reflections on what I call the doctrine of preservation. Um, people get sometimes some folks get nervous about this. All of this, all these texts. How do we how do we figure all of this out? Uh, sometimes our inclination is we want a simplistic single line of preservation, kind of like what you would see in 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 Islam. You know, sort of a, a Bible that drops out of the sky sort of kind of idea or or some of some some who insist that only one translation is the right one or one line of text but i see this as uh this brings glory to god uh the complexity could not be controlled by any one human hand one church one group of people god is sovereign over all of history every text he's preserved this word for us right for these things were written for our instruction, as Paul says. So the complexity is humbling. 
but God is sovereign. If if we're, if he's an infinite, eternal God that we say he is, then he's Lord of all of these manuscripts, and right. he gets the glory. He gets the glory for preserving it. So I don't see it. I used to get court of like when I didn't have enough knowledge about it. I I didn't quite know what to do with it. I mean, I never had a crisis of faith or anything, but just the like I don't I don't know what to do with all this information. Um, but I've totally that's totally turned around for me. I, I, I feel, and I just want to encourage people in the audience, nothing, there's nothing for us to be afraid of. Uh, God gets the glory for preserving his word, and we get the benefit of having it in the 21st century in a way that no one in the history of God's covenant people has ever had. So we should rejoice in the complexity. God's got it under control. That's excellent. Excellent advice. I like that. So let's shift gears just to, just to, little bit here from the origin sure. of preservation to what's in it. So if I were to sit down here and read my copy of Brenton, which I've never done, actually, I've never actually read the Septuagint uh, Old Testament. <laughs> yes. I probably should. I've read a lot of other um, versions of the Bible, but not the Septuagint. If I were to sit down and read Brenton, um, how much is it? Is it good? I mean, I, I don't know how to describe this. Is it is it sure. going to be close to what I read, say, in the English Standard or the NIV or the King James? Is Am I going to recognize the stuff or are there going to be stuff where I'm like, what is this and where did it come from? Is it, a, is it, I guess it's a different question than saying, is it faithful? But is it sound, is it read like the Old Testament that I know? Yeah, that's a, that's, <laughs> that's, that's a, a it's great. a tricky question, right? Because that may not be. It is. Is it a good it translation? Because it could have been a different Hebrew <laughs> yeah. that it's translated from. And uh, and you also have the issue of translation technique. So let, let me yes. give you a couple 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 thoughts on your question. Uh, Brenton is a good starting point, but it's it's outdated. Sure. But there's nothing there's nothing wrong with referencing it. It's it's a good place if you want to sort of get a start. It's kind of like what I say with Josephus. It's totally fine to have Wiston's 1737 version on your shelf, but if you're going to do serious work, you gotta you gotta get the more updated stuff, right? Right. So, sure. but it, it's a it's a good starting point, and we should be thankful for the men who came before us that had, had done all this preliminary work. What what we have more of now are what are called critical editions, where uh, all of the manuscripts are collated, and all all the major readings are given in the apparatus, like we do with New Testament criticism text textual work and then uh they propose what the original is and then that's all been translated into english so you can find the most up-to-date english translation of it's called nets the new english translation of the septuagint that's online for free nice so you can go to you can go to that and that's an english translation of the critical editions so what they think the original Septuagint read, the best that they can get at with all the manuscripts. And yes, you will see differences. Um, okay. And those, different, those differences are between that and your, your standard English Bible because there's differences in, in the Septuagint. So let's just use one example. Um, again, this comes from uh, Peter Gentry, who's really work, you know, he has a very high view of scripture and is, uh, I consider it from a conservative standpoint, one of the leading scholars in the world on the Septuagint. So I've tried to read a lot of his stuff. And, you know, he's done ex ex exhaustive work on the book of Job. Okay. Now, for a long, a long time, 
the, the Septuagint is about one sixth shorter in terms of just sheer length than the Hebrew of uh, Job. Okay. So the standard view for decades has been uh, the translator of the Septuagint must have been using a, a Hebrew text that was substantially different than the one we have in the Masoretic. So Dr. Gentry, Gentry studied this extensively for years and has written a commentary and has done all the, all the work on it. And he has concluded that the large-scale differences uh, in many cases are because the translator tried to shorten the speeches uh, to make them easier to read. All of Job, he calls them Job's friends' blustery speeches. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> And we know theologically they're blustery for a lot of reasons, right? It's, yeah, yeah. Just poor man who's suffering and trying to figure out why yeah. what he did wrong, right? But but Dr. Gentry concludes if you do the linguistic analysis first, the underlying Hebrew text actually doesn't deviate as much as we thought it did. Okay. So the the so so the conventional wisdom was it's a deviating Hebrew text. How do we get to deviating Hebrew texts? Well, we don't quite know. But then you do a linguistic analysis, which takes years, and you find out, well, maybe they're not so far apart. So if you read the English translation of the Septuagint of Job, you would see that difference between that and your ESV. So um, so what do you do with that? Right? That's yeah. the question. Yeah. Yeah. What do you do with that from the from a preservation and a doctrinal perspective. Well, understanding what the translator was doing is one of the most important components of that. What was he doing with Job when he was translating it? Was he wildly changing it? Was he diverging from it? Uh, or was he actually trying to communicate more faithfully to a Greek-speaking audience? And it, it, maybe if I could use an analogy, guys, um, Think about, like, when I'm, my first Bible, when I first got saved, my dad bought me a Bible, uh, it was the NIV. And I, and I have it still. It has all my original notes in it from when I was first, you know, became a follower of Jesus, was on fire for the Lord, was learning about the Bible, right, all that. But the NIV is a what's called a dynamic equivalence translation. It's a different theory of translation. It's a little bit more expansive. It's trying to massage the language for a particular type of reader. I would say my 12-year-old daughter would be able to read the, e the NIV a little easier than the ESV. Now, when I'm yeah. doing more ac academic work, I use the ESV because I feel it, it's, more, it's more rigid and more, a little more clunky in places, but it's trying. it has a different translation technique. It's trying to be more rigidly literal in getting at the original Hebrew. There's nothing wrong with the NIV approach, uh, but you just have to know that it's a different approach. And so if you take that analogy and you apply it to people translating Greek in the ancient world, it's the same, it's the same kind of idea. Um, and, I, and I think that's a way to understand it as, as to not alarm people as well yeah. about yeah. This, this divergence in the way that we understand it. So I, ho I hope that was helpful. Um, I think the analogy of English is really is really a way to go. Always think about those analogies because we're still doing that now. We're doing what the Greek translators were doing. 
We just have more information. We have electronics. We have more manuscripts. We can compare more. But they were trying to do the same thing that we're doing, the best that they could. Yeah. I mean, and unless we have reasons to think they were being malicious, we should attribute positive motives to their attempts to translate the Bible. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's a fair. I always yeah. try to think that. Yeah. So yeah, that makes right? sense. We would want to we would want to speak of them in the same manner that we want spoken of us when yeah. we die. Yeah. You know, right? So so we're rapidly running out of time here and we haven't gotten to <laughs> the gen the talking about creation yet. Um uh, I know and I'm sorry if I've been long-winded. Uh, no, I mean, don't I'll be sorry. I I want I no, this I, is a very helpful background. This is utterly fascinating and I just love talking about manuscripts of the Bible. I love the idea that you can you can physically make contact with believers from more than a thousand years ago. I just think that's utterly fascinating. You can and now in the in the digital world, you can go those those great codices you mentioned, you can find them. They're scanned and available online. You can go look at these things and you can see where these ancient Christians and ancient Jews had written these things down. It's just mind-blowing to me. And and I just find that to be just some of the most exciting things about being in the Christian faith. And I know that sounds silly, but as a scholar, I suppose, from a scholarly excitement standpoint, uh, to just be able to, to connect with this real heritage of our faith is remarkable and exciting. And so I could talk about this for hours. Um, but we do have to, uh, we should talk a little bit about creation. So you mentioned Job and how Job is, is, is in the Septuagint version quite, quite a bit different from what we would see in our modern English Bibles based on sort of the, the critical Hebrew Masoretic text. Okay. So yeah. what about, say Genesis specifically. So I know very little about this. I've looked up some articles on this, trying to understand. I'm told from what I read yesterday and, and, and the day before and during this week here, I'm told that, that it tends to be a fairly conservative, um, uh, more literal type translation. Am, am, is that right? How would you describe Genesis, the Genesis translation? Is it yeah. weird? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you, you can, yeah, yeah, you can always find uh, oddities here and there, right? Um, in, in especially a book as as big as Genesis. So this was one of the things that I had to tackle in terms of understanding. Uh, in studying the numbers in Genesis 5 and 11, right? Because we're talking about chronology, particularly. Yeah. That's that's kind of like, right? Okay. But what is the tendency in the broader picture of the book of Genesis as far as the translation goes? And so when you read the scholarship, so, uh, I, so I decided, okay, I want to know not one man's opinion, but like, you know, seven, eight, ten different people who've studied it. So one thing I did was I audited a course from, uh, from a school out in Vancouver where there's an institute for Septuagint research. And like one of the world's leading experts on Genesis taught the course and I audited it because I, I was like, I want to know. Yeah. You know, I want to know. So I read, I tried to read his stuff. 
and then numerous other scholars because they just want to get it from one guy. Um, and it's very consistent in the literature. They all say uh, whoever the translator was of Genesis treated the underlying Hebrew text fairly conservatively. Uh, there's not major pluses or what we call pluses or minuses. Large scale differences are not there. Uh, of course, you see some linguistic features of trying to translate certain words that have an Egyptian influence, but not to the degree that it's a worldview Hellenism kind of influence where they're changing the meaning. That's one major conclusion that you read in the literature. Um, yes, they're influenced by their Egyptian background, but not to the point where they're imposing that kind of worldview onto right. the translation, right? Right, right. And And so... Uh, as as an overall rule, uh, the the consensus in the way I see it is conservative treatment, trying to be faithful to uh, the underlying original text that they had before them, whatever the scroll was. We don't know exactly uh, where it came from. Aristia says they came from Jerusalem, but we don't we don't know if that was really the case. Maybe these scrolls were had come down there from from the from the exile, and they were copies of scrolls that. That had come to Egypt, we we're not sure. Uh, obviously, it had to come from Israel at some point, right? Yeah. The text right. had to had to get there. Yeah. So, to, to answer the fundamental question, uh, that's the consensus in the literature, and it's not. Um, you know, sometimes one scholar says this, and everybody else just parrots what he says. Yes. So it lo it looks like <laughs> there's a consensus, but there's not. Yeah. Right. It, the literature that I've read that that's not the case because they're they're working on different units of the text. You know, you read an article on the Babel narrative, and then you read another article on Genesis 1 and 2, and then you read another article on another section of Genesis, and they're all kind of saying the same thing. You know, you know, you know, conservative treatment. So to me, that's like, you know, the strand of three chords, um, where you can feel comfortable with making the assertion that the conservatism was there in the translation of it. So it's not like what you saw, what you mentioned about Job. It's not like there are major condensations or alterations to the the no. original text. It's pretty faithful to what we still have. Yes. And, and, and to add to that, historical narrative is, generally speaking, easier to translate than the poetry of Job sure. or, or legal, legal material like Leviticus. You know, yeah. or, or or the tabernacle narratives in Exodus. You know, those are harder things to translate. Yeah. And not to say that, not to say that Genesis doesn't have its challenges, but by and large, there's very little poetry in Genesis. You know, maybe Genesis 49, um, uh, uh, Jacob's uh, prophecy. There, I get that chapter right. 49, I think that's right. Um, but by and large, we've got historical narrative, and that, as a general rule, is easier is easier to translate. Uh, again, there's exceptions, but but overall, poetry is more difficult. I at least I think so. I mean, I found in my seminary training, uh, translating Hebrew narrative was far easier than the Psalms or something like Ecclesiastes. When I was in Westminster, we did we did like a couple chapters of Ecclesiastes, and man, it was like I thought I'd just run through the gauntlet. Uh, like, <laughs> can, can we go back to Genesis three or something? You know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not that that's not that that's not challenging either, but just in my own Different experience, ways. you know. Yeah. So um, yeah, so that's the that's the imprint that I see 
And so, because I wanted to know, you know, we have these devi- deviations in the numbers, right? Yeah. If you have a tendency in the, in the Septuagint translation to be conservative, then it's hard to argue that they were conservative in all of it, but they manipulated the numbers and changed the whole chronology. Right. That's not consistent with the picture in the in the whole. Now, could it be an exception? Yeah, you might be able to make that argument, but then there's other pieces of evidence that you would bring to bear on that. Right. Uh, but understanding the bigger picture was really important for me. Uh, and I saw that in other scholars who tried to tackle the subject too. I thought, ah, they're they're on to this. We need to look at the whole book. Yeah. Not just the numbers. Yeah. So. Because for the, for the translator, that was probably maybe a day or two work of translating those, transliterating those names and then making the, the, the numbers, you know, in putting the numbers into Greek. That's not a lot of, that's not a long amount of work there, I would imagine. No. Uh, let, me, let me, if I could piggyback that comment, because this is important too. One of the benefits, one of the upsides of studying the numbers is you don't have all of, all of the issues that are related to poetry, yep. Uh, yep. speeches by Job's friends, for example, uh, visions of Ezekiel, like, you know, Adam's 930 in Hebrew is 930 in Greek is 930 in Latin, is 930 in Syriac. So that's very simple. And so that's, even though the situation is complicated, the the totality of the evidence, the translation of that is actually one of the easiest things that they had to do. Yeah. So so Henry, um, we've kind of alluded to this difference in numbers between, say, the Masoretic text and the Septuagint, but just unpack that a bit more. We've, We've I think we mentioned it as well in our uh, sort of introductory episode on on the genealogies. But what are the differences in the numbers? You know, how different are they? Could you just unpack that a bit for us, please. Sure, sure. Okay, so uh, let's start. We'll start in the pre-flood period. So, uh, in your English Bible, you have Adam uh, uh, has Seth, and he it says that Adam's 130 years old. That number is also in the Samaritan Pentateuch, which is the Samaritan's version of, of, um, of the Torah. That's the only Bible that they had, but because they didn't believe in the rest of the of the of the canon. But okay, so you have two there, but the Septuagint number is two hundred and thirty. So now that's a that's a hundred years higher than the reading of one hundred and thirty. That's obviously a substantial difference. And that difference, the, where the other differences are throughout the pre-flood period, that obviously accumulates over time. So that, just to give you a, a sort of as a, as a starting point. But then it gets interesting because as you move closer to the flood, uh, this, the Samaritan Pentateuch changes the numbers for Jared, Methuselah, and Lamech. Um, and they all die in the year of the flood. It's pretty clear that that's been done deliberately um text for for you know there's a reason there's motivation there um but then there's a there's a change where the masoretic and the the septuagint then begin to match each other so that's a lot of fun so you look at that and you go okay what in the world's going on here right you know what's what's happening it's it it, and i should say when you first look at this it's very bewildering Uh, but you know it takes a lot of time to sort through that so now I'm being generic, but when you're talking about numbers and you can't visually see them, I want to be careful. 
um, because it's hard to communicate that. Uh, so as a general rule, you kind of see that pattern. Now let's go to the let's go to the post flood period. Now we sort of see a another pattern of change. So now we have our Faxad, son of Shem. His son is born when he's 35 in the Masoretic text. But in the Septuagint and the Sumerian Pentateuch, the age is 135. So that's a 100-year difference. And then you see that same pattern all throughout the post-flood genealogy. So all the three traditions give you three different chronologies and they give you different chronologies for each epoch. So from Adam to the flood, all three are different. And from the flood to Abraham, all three are different. And that's important um, because as creationists, we want to try to find at least an approximate date of the flood, most importantly, right? Because the obvious reason, when did the yeah. flood happen? Correlating animal populations and archaeology and all of the implications of what that that date is the date of creation is also important but you know we also know it's the world that then was that perished and so we can only get at the geology and not the archaeology so not that it's the date of creation is not important but i think probably the date of the flood is more important just from the standpoint of what i just described Sure. So it has it, it's it, it's if we don't have the right date or at least proximate, then the task of looking at archaeology and these other things uh, doesn't correlate. And then also, if we have the wrong date and we make apologetic arguments to try to defend scripture, but the date's wrong, ultimately the apologetic won't hold up. Yeah, yeah. So the, the so the implications are uh, really important, right? Yeah. I think that makes sense, you know, like, hey, you know, ultimately it's a search for truth, you know, let's get it right. And then we can do our scientific and historical and archaeological research off the proper foundation. Right. So that's, that's a sort of a big picture synopsis of all that. Yeah. And how, how big a difference are we talking in terms of the date of the flood between these different texts than Henry? Yeah. So uh, we'll, we'll just talk about the Masoretic and the, and the, and the Septuagint just to keep it a little easier um the 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 date for the flood in the masoretic text now i have to add to this just try not to complex this too much uh different people have different views on the length of the egyptian sojourn okay some say it's 430 years some say it's 215 so i'm just gonna i'm just gonna use the long sojourn uh, th that's the view that i hold but i haven't exhaustively studied it so for those out there who go for the short, I hear you. Uh, you have some good arguments, so I'm cool with that. Uh, but let's just go with the long, okay? Uh, if you use the long sojourn and you use the Septuagint, your flood date is about 3,300 BC, give or take. Um, and there's probably wiggle room in there. I wouldn't try to be as precise as I would for, like, the divided kingdom period. You know, I mean, this is this is early. We don't need to be, you know you know, October 24th or something like that, um, <laughs> you know, 3,300 as an example, uh, or as an as a, as a approximate date. Uh, the, the date in the Masoretic text is, is probably around 2,500. So we're talking about, with, that's with the long sojourn. Um, so we're talking about 800 years, 
780 year difference in the post-flood epoch. Wow. That's significant. That's a lot. That's a yeah. lot. Yeah. I would love that much time. <laughs> yeah. 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 Now, if, if I might, if I might add to, to that, that's, that's a great, that's a great comment. I agree. Uh, it would in theory be nice to have more time. Now, um, some people have misunderstood me thinking I'm trying to make this work because I want more time. Oh, right, okay. yeah, right, 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 right. So, so, so two things I would say, um, my goal has been to evaluate the evidence related to the biblical text. I want the right date, no matter what the archeological or historical implications are. Then we turn our attention to the external evidence. That's the methodology that I want to employ. And on top of that, 3,300 gets you about 800 more years, but you've still got Neolithic dates of 6,000 BC. That's right. And Epipaleolithic and so on and so forth. Uh, so it doesn't no. fix that issue. So, you know, if I wanted, if I wanted to fix that issue, I would reject the chronology of Genesis 5 and 11. That's how you, that's how you <laughs> fix the issue. Yeah. Right? right. You know what I mean? Like, so, so, and I'm only saying that I'm not, I'm not trying to be defensive. I just, I just want to be, I, I like yeah. to be transparent. With this, yeah. That the biblical text holds methodological priority over the external evidence. Um, And I know you guys agree with that methodology, but that's a foundational issue. It comes down to the authority of scripture and hermeneutics and how we relate the external to the biblical text and all that. So it does resolve some problems for us, Um, but there's a lot of work to be done uh, even with the 3300 flood date. Uh, all those other periods I mentioned need to be all recalibrated. That's an enormous task, a lifetime of work for a whole field of scholars that maybe haven't even been born yet. <laughs> yeah, right. So well, we are. That, that, that's great. We're we're running out of time, um, unfortunately. Uh, let's let's just one more final sum up idea here, yes. Henry. You're what. So we want to be faithful to the biblical text. And here's the situation where we do not know which one is the original biblical text. Because we have one tradition that has that differs from another tradition uh, by hundreds of years. So how do we how can we do this? So your assessment of the data is that the Septuagint chronology likely represents the original chronology better than what we now have as the Hebrew text. Is that, is that correct? That That's right. Based on, okay. and, and based, based on, on a lot other, of other things. Yeah. Yes. Yes. The totality of the evidence. And there's a lot. Right. That's yeah. it. The, good, the good, the good part is we've got tons of data. The bad, yeah. the hard part is you got to spend a lot of time working through it, but yeah. it's a good problem. It's a good problem. Yeah. We're going to have to, we're going to have to have you back in a little while to talk about that specific issue. Sure. Uh, because, but I'm really grateful for the introduction to the Septuagint. This has been fascinating and fun. And for those of you listening, wished we'd talk more about chronology. Sorry, we'll get to it. <laughs> this series is not done. Like all our intermittent series, we're going to come back to this in a couple episodes. We'll have some, we'll, we'll sprinkle in some other 
uh, topics here, and we will return to the question of Septuagint versus Hebrew uh, chronology um, uh, later on. Uh, but thank you so much for being with us, Henry. Uh, we appreciate you. I, I appreciate it very much. I'm yeah. very grateful for the opportunity. I'd love to come back anytime. Great. Uh, after I get after I get back from Israel. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm grateful for what you guys do. Keep up the great work. Yeah. Thank you so much. And thanks everybody for watching. Paul, any closing thoughts? Well, this is such a controversial uh, question. I know we, we, we love touching on difficult and controversial questions in this podcast. And I know that there are going to be people out there who, you know, prefer the Masoretic chronology. And so, you know, this is not the final word. We're, yeah. we're going to come back and explore these issues uh, some more. So just, I, I guess we should just sort of reassure our listeners that, you know, this, this is an ongoing series. We want to sort of dig into these subjects and do them justice. And yeah, we're very grateful for Henry sort of setting out his stall and, you know, his case for the Septuagint chronology. And we'd like you to come back and talk some more about that, Henry. Definitely. definitely. Wonderful. All um, right. I'm well, ready when you are. All right. Sounds good. <laughs> all right. Well, everybody, don't forget to uh, like and subscribe and uh, leave a review if you're on one of our audio audio only platforms. And we will see you in a fortnight with another subject on Let's Talk Creation. See you then. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Creation. For more information, visit us at letstalkcreation.org, where you'll find an archive of past episodes and all our show notes. If you'd like to leave a comment or make a suggestion, you can find us on all the major social media platforms. Let's Talk Creation is brought to you in the U.S. by Core Academy of Science and in the U.K. by Biblical Creation Trust. As a listener-supported ministry, we are grateful for all of your financial support. Find out how you can make a contribution at our website, letstalkcreation.org. Also remember to like, subscribe, and share this episode with your friends. Thanks, and see you next time.